Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The Lord has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed grow free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then Jesus said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. Or you will say, do here in your hometown all the things that we heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah. When the heavens were shut three and a half years and there was a severe famine over all the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleaned except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove Jesus out of the town, led him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But Jesus passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. As you're seated, our children are dismissed for their time of worship. And as our children leave, let's bow together and pray. We pray that the ancient word may become the living word, a word of power in our lives. We may have presumed that this Sunday would be like many other Sundays, good, but no new news. Surprise us with the mystery of good news. Expand our thinking. Increase the possibilities as we listen for you in and through sermon and scripture and song and silence. And now, Lord, we ask that there be unity on earth, the harmony that you dreamed, as we use the words that Jesus long ago 
taught us to pray, praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. When I was a child, I was taught a little poem that I could recite when someone said something which hurt my feelings. I suspect you know this one. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It suggests that words don't really have power. Sticks and stones have power. Words don't have power. I will admit to you that as a person who uses words all the time, as a preacher, sometimes I've had to wonder, do words have power? I have a friend who was the best man at our wedding. He's a stockbroker. He would say to me, Joe, you and me, we're just selling dreams. And sometimes I wonder. I mean, I don't make anything. I don't produce anything. I arrived in Louisville at the very same time that Tom Jurek, the athletic director at the University of Louisville, arrived. Since 1997, Mr. Jurek has overseen the building of a stadium and the Yum Center, dormitories, clubhouses, golf courses. And I've been standing here talking. And yet I know that old rhyme is exactly wrong, right? Words do have power. Words can hurt. Words can curse. Words can shame. Words can cause confusion and fear. Do you remember in 1996 when the Federal uh, Federal Reserve Chair, Alan Greenspan, just made a comment about the, the stock market making the reference to irrational exuberance, and all of a sudden the start market plummeted. Just on two words, two words. But that's not all words can do. Words can hurt and shame and cause fear and confusion. But words can also awaken. Words can challenge. Words can guide. Guide us toward what is true. Words can activate us. The words in this book I've been encouraging you to read, the half has never been told, they've awakened me. They've activated me. Words have the capacity to heal and bless and restore and inspire. Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, but one universally known example of words' capacity to inspire. Words can recreate and reorganize our minds to new possibilities, new goals, new values. A world that believes, really believes, not just on Sunday, but really believes that the greatest is love. How would the world be different 
if we truly believed that the greatest thing in the world was love, it would make all the difference. A world where God's dream becomes reality, where good news gets preached to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to release the prisoners, to announce the year of the Lord's favor. The question is, can mere words get us there? God calls Jeremiah. Jeremiah respectfully declines. He's a reluctant prophet. I'm just a boy, he says. I'm not matured. I don't have the right words. I'm not ready. And I'll tell you the truth. I don't know any preacher, any word person, who hasn't felt at times, not just at the beginning of ministry, but throughout ministry, I don't have words. I don't have words. I don't, I don't know. I'm afraid I'm in too deep. I'm afraid I don't get it. I just don't trust my own words. And so what preachers tend to do is mimic other preachers, whether it's their, their, their voice, their diction, or their gestures. And sometimes we, they'll even borrow other people's stories because you recognize the truthfulness in someone else's story, but you don't trust it in your own story. And so I love what God says to Jeremiah. God says, I'm calling you to live into your destiny. You were born to do this. Before you were even formed in the womb, this is who you were designed to be. It's like we said in the opening call to worship. God believes in us when we don't believe in ourselves. God says to us, this is your job. This is your job to be the one who sees the reality And finds the words to name the power gap that you and I see between what is real now and what God dreams it to be someday. For that gap between the way the world is now and the way God dreams it is actually an open wound in God's dream. God says, I'll put my words in your mouth. You'll see and you can point and you can be the one to bear the love into this kind of context where there's brokenness and division and disharmony and fear. And of course, I have a feeling you already know what I'm going to say, that God wasn't talking just to Jeremiah alone. God was talking to each and every one of us. This has been our destiny since before we were born. Listen, the reason we put people in stained glass windows is not because they're superheroes doing things that you're unable to do. We put them in the windows. There's Jeremiah, old baldy they called him, in the center um, of the gold-backed windows. He's there to remind us this is who we're called to be. This is our work. I'm not a superhero, says Jeremiah. I'm another person like you, called to be a prophet of God. For this is our most natural and intuitive operating system. We were born to pull in the direction of love. To pull our own life and everything around us in and toward the direction of love. It's how we're wired. Birds have got to fly, fish have got to swim, and human beings have got to love. 
even the most despicable person you know was born and wired to be a person of love. And if you want to see what this looks like in human form, if you want to know what it looks like for someone to be fully immersed in being one who pulls in the direction of love, you look to Jesus, whom we call the Christ. He shows up in Nazareth, his hometown. Maybe you've gone back to your hometown and you remember what that feels like. Perhaps you've been back for a high school reunion and, you know, you want to try to look and be your best and all your old friends are there and your uncle who teases you and the teacher who always nagged you and there you are with everyone and you're remembering the old days back when the Nazareth Nets won the regional championship or whatever. And there's Jesus in the midst of them. And they're excited to see him. He's popular. He's popular all over. And here he's come back home. But he's got a word to say, and it's a word of power. He says to them, the times call for change. He reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah about a reversal of fortunes. For too long, the powerful and rich have held all the sway. It's time for a change. It's time for good news to be preached to the poor, sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. And you can just see all of his friends and his former Sabbath school teacher going, oh, that's my boy. I taught him. Had him in in church school. He was ornery, but I taught him, and he did well. I think we ought to nominate him for one of those hometown hero banners that we can put on the side of our building. I'll be proud of Jesus. He's from our hometown. Do you know he's from Nazareth? Until they realize this message cuts both ways. Oh, yeah, we love it when we talk about good news for the poor, letting the oppressed go free, when we talk about bullies and oppressors and dominators who offend us and our sensibilities. We love that. But Jesus won't talk only about nations or corporations or big, large entities and institutions. Jesus also wants to talk about the office where you work or the people who hang around your locker at school or here at church or maybe your home, your relationship with your spouse. Each one of those has many potentials for someone someone, to be the oppressor, the dominator, the bully. And if it's you, are you willing to change? Are you still able to celebrate the reversal? And then, as if to make matters worse, Jesus says to him, oh, by the way, This reversal, it's not just about us and our little tribe. Look in your own Bible, he says. You remember the story of Elijah with the widows? You remember that there were lots of starving widows, but he went to someone outside of our group. And you remember his successor, Elisha. Remember when there were all these lepers all throughout Israel, but the only one who got healed was a man named Naaman, who was... A Syrian, an outsider. I don't, have, I don't think you have to know much about the history in the, from these Hebrew stories to know that Jesus is implying something very significant, and they got it. 
They understood what he was saying. He was saying to them, oh, you assumed that you were a shoe-in, that you're kind of like a, a legacy in a fraternity system, or that you have some kind of manifest destiny that allows you to be more special than anyone else. You think somehow you're going to have diplomatic immunity to my way? Oh, I'm sorry. You were chosen to be an agent of love. You were chosen to bless and heal the nations. God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless you and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You thought that was just for you? You must have forgotten or maybe you got distracted. Maybe you're like Billy in the Sunday cartoons, Family Circus. He's always kind of wandering off the track. Maybe you got distracted. or Maybe you became afraid. Well, you might assume that the good people of Nazareth would actually be glad to hear this message. Oh, God is more loving than we even imagined? Whoa! That's great news. You would think that a group of people who are mature and confident, living into their call as God's chosen people, would be glad to hear that, right? I mean, you'd be glad, wouldn't you? Would you be glad if I invited you to forfeit your spot as being someone special in this world so that others might have more? People don't mind giving up their place, do they? Or their power, or their privilege. I've told this story before about a man who was granted a wish. You may wish for anything you want, and it will be granted unto you. But know this, whatever is given to you will be given double to your adversary. He thought about it. If I ask for riches, my adversary will get twice as much. If I ask for power, my adversary will get twice as much. If I ask for happiness, my adversary will get twice as much. Finally, he came up with an idea. Came back to the one granting the wish and said to him, Blind one of my eyes. Jesus told a parable one time about workers in the vineyard. People got hired at the beginning of the day. They lived with the assurance that they were going to eat at the end of the day. But others were also invited at noon and at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, when everyone was paid the same, those who worked at the beginning said, Whoa, foul. That's not fair. We worked all day. And the owner says, Oh, are you jealous because I'm generous? So it really doesn't come as much surprise that Jesus' old friends were so threatened by his words, so offended by his words, so scared by his words that they tried to throw him off a cliff. It's really no surprise. It's the way we humans are prone to wander. In this book that is been so powerful to me the half has never been told among the many things that I came to realize as I worked my way through this narrative is that people 
who have the power, whether it's a slave trader or a slave owner, whether it's the credit banks in New York or London who made the whole operation work and kept the whole slave system alive, people who have power will do and say anything to retain their power. They'll do anything. They'll say anything. I have an op-ed in today's Courier-Journal. It is possible that when people read this op-ed, they're going to be angry. They may think I'm a traitor. They may be offended that I'm questioning white privilege. I understand it because if it's any consolation, it really threatens me too. It's scary. I've lived my whole life with white privilege. I never think about being white. People of color always think about being a person of color. I would much prefer to ignore history, retain my position, and be able to pray like the publican in that parable Jesus told when he prayed, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like those other people. I would love to do that. But I can't. I can't play it safe. These, this Bible, these words I handle each week, they have power. They've changed me. They cause me to recognize. They, ca- they awaken me and cause me to see and care. And they put words in my mouth. And sometimes they even, sometimes even give me the capacity to practice what I preach. Because the words have power. Sometimes these words come by way of our singing together. Sometimes it comes by way of the silence as we sit before God. Sometimes it comes as the scripture is read. Occasionally it even shows up in a sermon, but it always shows up by the Spirit. And if you're willing, the word can be placed in your mouth, your mouth, for you to speak the word where you live, with the circles that you run in, placed there by God as God placed the words in Jeremiah's mouth to pluck up and destroy, to pull down and overthrow, or to build up and to plant. May God give us the courage to speak the word as it comes. Lord, open our lips and our mouths will proclaim your praise. Let's pray together. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And when the word comes, we ask that you allow it to be accompanied by the courage to live into the faith that you are calling us to. In your holy name we pray. Amen. This